0: Good morning, great to have you here today, great to be with you this morning. And want to let you know, we are gonna celebrate the Lord's Supper communion today. So if you did not get one of the little pre-packaged cups on the way in, I believe we have some on each of the tables that are in the back. So uh, after the message, we'll celebrate the Lord's Supper today. Wanna also mention that um, if you don't already have one of these, this is our study guide through the book of Romans and we will use it this winter, spring, and uh, then take a break over the summer and pick it up again uh, later in the fall. So uh, I think David Holcomb, Pastor Holcomb, and Emily Rubel, our discipleship intern, have done a really great job and put together a really thorough study of the Book of Romans. So if you haven't got one of those, you can get those at the Resource Center today. and. also want to mention that David and Emily are facilitating something called Table Talk. It is a video that we will um, record uh, on Monday and respond to any questions you might have about the sermon, about the book we're studying. And um, that is uh, put on our YouTube channel and Facebook at 12 noon on Tuesdays and then available thereafter. It's called Table Talk. So, They've done a great job with that too. Well, the book of Romans. If you were here last week, David Holcomb started us off, I thought, really well. And um, you'll recall the book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, who um, wrote 13 of our New Testament books. The book of Romans has been called the most basic, most comprehensive statement of true Christianity. It is a logical, systematic explanation of the gospel. Now, today we're in the second half of chapter one of the book of Romans. And remember now, when Paul wrote this letter, uh, it was a letter, a long letter. In our Bibles, it's broken up into 16 chapters. But when he wrote it, there were no chapter divisions. It was just one long letter. And so, it's his logical, systematic explanation of the gospel. And as we're studying it by chapters or half a chapter today, keep in mind that every section does not contain the entirety of the gospel because he's laying out this systematic, uh, logical explanation of the gospel. And the passage we're in today, the latter half of chapter one, is really laying the groundwork for the good news of the gospel by pointing out human sin and the righteous, justified wrath of God toward human sin. So keep that in mind when you read through the latter half of chapter one, as we go through it today and think, boy, this Apostle Paul's saying a lot of negative stuff. He'll get to the explanation of the gospel, but here he's laying the groundwork. And it's all, of course, important, all given us by God, all inspired by God. In Romans 1, verses 16 and 17, we saw some of the most important verses in the book. When we read, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. When Paul says the Jew first and also the Greek, he's, he's meaning, I think, all human beings, starting with the Jews, but encompassing non-Jews as well. The gospel is needed by everyone. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone. And he explains further, for in it, that is, in the message of the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. So he's made the point, the gospel is for everybody. It's so everyone can be deemed righteous in the eyes of God through their faith in Jesus. He'll explain more about this later. But now, at this point in chapter 1, we begin our section today, starting in verse 18. He's going to make the point that all people, all people stand responsible before God. All people are responsible for acknowledging, honoring, and giving thanks to God. And we read these words. For the wrath of God and the things that have been made, so they are without excuse." Do you hear what he's saying here? He's saying that the creation itself bears witness to the Creator. Creation itself tells us there's a great Creator. The, the, the sky, Psalm 19 tells us, the heavens declare the glory of God. The sky proclaims the work of His hands day into day, utter speech, Night unto night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. King David wrote that psalm, and he's saying all of creation tells us there's a creator. It's like a beautiful work of art that tells us that the artist must exist. Paul is telling us that creation speaks of our creator. James Boyce, well, well, first of all, let me say this. This is known by theologians as general revelation, general revelation, sometimes called natural revelation, is the revelation of God in nature that is available to everyone. Even the person on the most distant island who's never encountered a missionary has access to this revelation, declares the glory of God. And that should be enough, Paul's going to say in this passage, to cause us To honor God, to thank God, enough to draw our hearts toward Him. Paul will explain certainly it's not enough to understand the gospel. That takes what uh, theologians call special revelation given in His Word that we are privileged to have in the book of Romans. But for now Paul's saying all people are responsible for acknowledging God because of the witness of God in creation. General revelation, as James Boyce says in his great commentary on the book of Romans, there's enough evidence of God in a flower to lead a child, as well as a scientist, to worship Him. <clears throat> so Paul lays this out, and then he He goes on to stress that apart from God's intervention, human beings, however, choose counterfeit glories over the glory of God. For although they knew God, that is, although they had the witness of God in creation, although creation declares the glory of God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images representing, uh, resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Paul's point is that human beings tend to be drawn to lesser glories instead of the glory of God. In the Gospels of Matthew and, and Luke, we have the account of Jesus being tempted by Satan, taken out in the wilderness, tempted by Satan. Satan gave him three temptations, and in one of them, he took him up on a mountaintop, and the Bible says he showed him in a moment of time all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. The kingdoms of this world have a certain glory. And Satan said to Jesus, all these will be yours if you fall down and worship me. And of course, Jesus said, it is written, you shall serve the Lord your God Worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. Jesus knew the greatness of the glory of God and that the glories of the nations of this world were nothing in comparison. One day, Jesus was in conversation with religious leaders who were accusing Him, and He said, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? We human beings are drawn to lesser glories. And Paul notes that this is part of the problem. Later in the book of Romans, he'll point out that none is righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Now, at this point in the book of Romans, again, Paul's laying out the case of our need for the gospel of Jesus Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. He moves from here. And he begins talking about the wrath of God. We saw in verse 18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and of unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth. And the fact is, God's wrath is His just response to human unrighteousness and ungodliness. People I know don't like to hear about the wrath of God. It's not something I particularly like to talk about. But We must understand this. If we are to understand who God is, really grasp the whole picture of our Creator God, we should know that His wrath is an essential part of who He is. His wrath is His just, holy, right, and good anger toward that which contradicts His nature, His holy nature. What would you think of a God who on the day of judgment had every human being in in, in history walking by and Hitler came by, an unrepentant Hitler, an unrepentant person who'd slaughtered uh, countless other people. What would you think of a God who just patted him on the back and said, oh, we're going to forget about all that. doesn't matter that you didn't repent. Come on in and join the celebration. We'd say that God is not just. God is not only loving merciful compassionate gracious and good but he is just and his wrath is an important part of his nature his holy nature and it's important that we understand his wrath is always just it's always righteous and paul is saying that in god's wrath he sometimes expresses his wrath by letting people go their own way. And in discussing God's wrath in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through the verses that we'll see uh, here, three times we find the phrase, God gave them up. One of the worst things God can do to a person is just to let him or her go their own way without intervening with his grace. I think we see instances of this in scripture. We see it in the days of Noah. In Genesis chapter six and verse five, the Bible says that the the thoughts of the heart of every person was only evil continually. We see it in in the book of Judges when the Bible says in those days, there was no judge in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we read that book and we see the, the horrific immorality and violence and evil there. It's a judgment when God lets people go their own way. And, and Paul talks about in this chapter that in this chapter three times he says God gave them up as an expression of his wrath. First of all, in verses 24 and 25, he gave them up to impurity and idolatry. We read, therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who is blessed forevermore. I want to stress to you here, the Apostle Paul, in this passage, is rooting his teaching about God in creation— He he stresses God, the great creator, in this passage. And, And I stress this because Paul is giving us timeless truth here. He's not dealing with one unique situation in the church at Rome and writing to the Romans about it. He's not dealing with one situation that only applies to them and doesn't apply to us. He's rooting his teaching here in God's order and creation. And he says one of the ways God expresses his wrath is just let people go to impurity and idolatry. Now, the language here to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves clearly implies sexual sin. The latter language about worshiping and serving the creature rather than the creator uh, implies idolatry. And if you were with us last year, when we went through one story, all the the books of the Bible, Old and New Testament, we saw, I think, quite a number of times that these two sins characterize humans in their rebellion against God frequently. And they were addressed by the Old Testament prophets and they are addressed in the New Testament. Sexual immorality and idolatry, these categories of sin seem to be prevalent when human beings are departing from their worship of God, their Creator, and their Savior. God gave them up. The first, God gave them up, impurity and idolatry. The second one, same-sex practices. We now get to the most controversial two verses in Romans chapter 1, but I think they're quite clear, and I want to stress to you again that Paul rooted his teaching here He's linking it to who God is as the creator of all things. In verse 25, he says they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, capital C, who is blessed forevermore. And he continues in verse 26, For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves, (coughs) excuse me, the due penalty for their error. Now, I'll stress again the link to creation when Paul uses phrases like natural relations, contrary to nature. Paul elsewhere in his writings, when he talks about the physical relation, the sexual relationship, In marriage in Ephesians chapter 6 will quote the verse that I believe is the foundational verse in Scripture about marriage and sexuality. It's Genesis 2 24 where the Bible says, for this cause a man shall leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife and the two shall be one flesh. This was the verse that Jesus quoted when he spoke about marriage in Matthew chapter 19 and Jesus added the words Therefore what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. There are the same verses the Apostle Paul quotes in Ephesians chapter six in his teaching on marriage. The Apostle Paul knows that this is God's creative design from the very beginning. And so he is saying here, I think very, very uh, clearly that along with many other sins that he's gonna mention in this passage, he's not isolating this one particular sin. He is clearly saying that same-sex practices are sin and are contrary to God's design. Now, admittedly, this is a difficult, difficult subject for us in our culture, in our time, right here and now. We all have um, friends, uh, family members, people we know who have come out and said uh, that they're gay. We have family members ourselves who we love dearly. But the solution, my friends, is not to change what we understand the Bible to be saying, but to understand, interpret, imply it clearly. Here's the reason I stress that. Paul is addressing here, um, not a unique one-time problem at at Rome, but timeless truth, and he's linking it to God's creative order. It seems to me that today, when it comes to people who are preaching behind pulpits in the United States of America, people treat scripture three different ways, and this is perhaps a broad generalization and it's only my opinion. But, but category one would be those who say all scripture is inspired by God We believe it is God's timeless truth, rightly interpreted, rightly applied, and it is infallible. That is, it is without error in all it teaches. It's not Paul's opinion. Paul was inspired by God. Uh, That's my view, that's our church's view, that's our denomination's view, and I hope we can safely uh, stand there (coughs) in interpreting Scripture. I'll call that view number one. View number three over here is very prevalent. In mainline churches throughout our country, preachers who would say, yeah, the Bible's good. The Bible is God's word if it speaks to you in your heart. If it speaks to me, it's God's word. But God may very well, just as well, speak to me through a song that I listen to or through beautiful poetry that I listen to. If it witnesses to me, then it's God's word. And therefore, we can discount anything that doesn't resonate with us rightly or maybe fit our cultural, enlightened cultural understanding. Now, in my view, this is not even getting close to accepting scriptures all inspired by God. But many, many are in that position in our seminaries and churches across America today. But there's a second position that to me is the most deceptive. This is the person who says, yes, we take all scripture as inspired by God. We take it as as the word of God. We believe the gospel. We are are born-again Christians. But there's some things that we gotta be really uh, wise in in the way we interpret. And I'm gonna quote to you now from a pastor of one of the largest churches in our country who uh, certainly would be labeled as a Christian, whose books you will find, if you ever buy books from Christian book distributors, you'll find them prominently displayed there. I'm quoting from one of his books that I read over this week, where he comments on Romans chapter 1, verses 26 and 27, which we're looking at right now. And he says, regarding Paul's words here, I have no doubt that for Paul, the idea of a man being with a man was unnatural. It seemed unclean. It seemed wrong for Paul, for Paul. He goes on to say, in other words, are these words describing Paul's understanding of sexual norms, or do they describe God's timeless will as if there is a disconnect there? He goes on to say later in his book, I've come open to the possibility that God's perspective on homosexuality may be different from what we read in Paul's letter to the church in Rome. He ends the chapter by by saying if we want to reach young adults today in our world uh, who who, uh, those who take the Bible seriously understand the Bible contains verses that reflect the times in which it was written rather than the timeless will of God. Now, there are certain passages that do have an important cultural context. This is why I stressed with this passage that Paul has rooted it in creation in in God's creative order. Now, I stress that because it's become popular to treat the Apostle Paul as a self-righteous homophobe and a product of his culture. But I want to read elsewhere where the Apostle Paul, and again, he does not isolate same-sex practices from other sins as if they are somehow the unforgivable or worse sin. Typically, when he speaks of these sins, he's building a case for the gospel, and he's giving a long list of sins. He does the same in 1 Timothy chapter 1, where he lists all manner of Sinners and people who strike their mothers and fathers, and murderers and sexually immoral, and men who practice homosexuality, and he goes on and on. But then he says this in verse 15 of 1 Timothy chapter 1. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. You hear what this man said, Paul the Apostle? He points out a lot of sin, but he said, none are worse than me. I'm the worst. I'm the chief. I'm the foremost. And he says, but I receive mercy for this reason, that in me is the foremost, the chief, the worst of sinners. Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to everybody else who would believe. Not a self-righteous man. His words may seem at times strong, and they are clear. But not a self-righteous man. I want to give you a couple of recommended readings and then move on from verses 26 and 27 because they (coughs) are not uh, the only point in the passage, and I don't want to treat them as they are. I only took a little more time on them because of uh, the great confusion surrounding them in our culture today. If you or someone you know, um, is particularly those who are just confused about what they're feeling about themselves, if you have a friend who's this way, struggling with same-sex attraction, and wants something clear, I think Sam Alberry is one of the better teachers today. His very short little book, It's Got Anti-Gay, is very good. He has lots of short videos on his website. Um, I recommend that for a good, simple, solid, biblical book that it clearly addresses in their context uh, the passages related to homosexuality. I think Kevin DeYoung's book, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality?, is one of the best that I have read. Now let's move on, because sexual sins are not the only ones in this chapter. They are not isolated from others. And for the third time, Paul is going to say God gave them up to all manner of unrighteousness. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what not ought to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. My goodness. I think if we raised our hand, those of us who are guilty, we'd all be raising our hand here for some of these, wouldn't we? gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Unless we are still feeling a bit self-righteous about ourselves, Paul, before he goes, drifts very far from this topic of God's judgment, in chapter 2 and verse 1, will address judgmentalism, saying therefore you have no excuse so oh man every one of you who judges for in passing judgment on another you condemn yourself because you the judge practice the very same things <coughs> well what hope is there again paul's laying the groundwork for the beauty of the gospel here and we will go on to see that the gospel calls us to turn to our creator in repentance and faith, the section of scripture we've covered this morning, in Romans one eighteen, through uh, the early verses of Romans chapter two, uh, and verse four, are sandwiched by the two verses you'll see on the screen, Romans two four and the ones you saw earlier, Romans one sixteen, and verse seventeen, where we saw that. Uh, I'm not ashamed of the gospel as the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. The righteous shall live by faith. And then it's sandwiched on the other side. Don't be judgmental and don't presume on the riches of God's kindness and forbearance and patience, knowing that God's kindness leads you to repentance. The kindness of God, Paul will say, is displayed in his gospel. Yes, God's wrath is right, it's just, it's holy, it's good. But he will teach us later in Romans chapter three that in his great mercy, he ordained that his righteous wrath be poured out upon his own holy sinless son, the second person of the Trinity, that he would bear the judgment of our sins there. He would bear the wrath. He would take our place. He would be the Lamb of God. He would be the great substitute for us. And in this, God would display the riches of his kindness, his forbearance, his patience, But note something, Paul says, God's kindness in the gospel leads us to repentance. The faith that is the faith that embraces the gospel of Jesus Christ is not faith that leaves us unchanged. It is not faith that leaves us to continue in the covetousness or the maliciousness or the idolatry or the sexual immorality that characterized our lives previously. In the New Testament, faith and repentance are inseparably linked. That's why the apostle Paul says in the book of Acts, I preached repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ because they are tied together. Now, as we reflect back on these verses, A few thoughts by way of personal application. Number one, as we read Romans chapter 1, we should acknowledge, honor, and give thanks to God in everything we do. Remember Romans 1.21 says, although they had the witness of God in creation, although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. Parents, those of you who have children in your home still, teach them, to thank God for every good and perfect gift we have. The Bible says he is the source of every blessing we enjoy, richly enjoy in life. Teach them the value of thanksgiving, gratitude to God. Number two, we should acknowledge, uh, since God shows us kindness, forbearance, and patience, we should treat others the same way. Some people read Romans 1 to 28 about God's wrath, the, the part about sexual sin, and they want to use it as a great big hammer to beat other people. Friends, God's wrath is just and holy and righteous and good. Ours is not. The book of James says that a wrath of man does not achieve the righteous purpose that God desires. We are, however, to emulate the patience. kindness we see in God these things are fruit of the Holy Spirit fruit the Holy Spirit works in us I'm not suggesting in any way that we compromise the clear teaching of his word rather we deal with all people with patience kindness love compassion and then thirdly remember that every person we meet needs the gospel it's the gospel, Paul says, it's the power of God to salvation, the Jew first and also the Greek. It's for everybody. Everyone you and I know has either received the gospel of Jesus or they stand in need of the gospel right now. Now, on the screen you'll see a picture of a bookmark that uh, David Holcomb and Emily Rubel have had printed up to go with our study guides um, this winter, spring. And on the back of the bookmark, there's several verses, and they're titled, The Roman's Road to Salvation. I want to give you a a loving challenge this morning during the period of Lent, which begins this Wednesday, February 17th, and goes through uh, Easter. The challenge is to memorize these verses. They're easy Easy verses to memorize. Romans 3.10, none is righteous, no, not one. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. To memorize them, and number two, begin praying about one person with whom you will share the gospel this year. One person. That's part of our (coughs) our vision, our dream, our goal for this study of the book of Romans. Is that everyone who calls our church home would be equipped and enabled to share the gospel with at least one person this year. Friend, family member, neighbor, somebody you work with. Well how do you do that? The Romans road to salvation is just a selection of verses in Romans that you and I can use when we talk to another person around about Jesus. It's not the only way to do that. There are lots of different ways to do that. But you may be uh, having lunch with a a friend and you may say, hey, um, can I take just a moment to share with you some some verses that, that have really helped me better understand the faith. I'd love to share them with you, would that be okay? The Bible says that we really need a relationship with Jesus Christ. And the book of Romans says, there's none righteous, no, not one, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And it says the wages of sin is death. That is, our, our sins separate us from God, and we've all sinned. But it also says that God showed his love toward us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He might go on to explain that uh, Romans 10 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, God raised from the dead, you'll be saved. And these little verses become a very simple way for you to share the message of the gospel with your friend. Now, whenever I talk about memorizing Scripture in a, in a sermon, well, not, not all the time, but sometimes people come up and say, I can't memorize, I cannot memorize anything. And if that's really true, if it's really true, you can't memorize, here's what I suggest. Get a little New Testament, like this Gideon's New Testament, or the, the little ESV testaments we have out at the Resource Center. I think they cost about a dollar a piece. And take these verses from Romans and open it up to the book of Romans with a highlighter and just highlight the verses. And maybe bend over those pages. And when it comes time to talk to your friend, And you say, hey, can I take just a moment to share with you some verses that explain why my faith is so important to me, and I'd love to share those with you. Would that be okay? You just open it up and you walk them right through, and then you give them the Bible. But these verses, I think, will be be helpful to us. And I want to just give you the loving challenge this year to memorize these Romans road verses and pray about who God would have you share them with this year. Romans chapter 1 makes clear that we're all deserving of the wrath of God for not honoring God as we should. However, the gospel is the power of God for salvation to all. Jesus took our place that we might stand righteous before God despite what we have done. And we celebrate that today by taking what we call communion, the Lord's Supper. So if you've got one of these little cups handy, you got one on the way and you might want to get it now, if you don't have one, you might want to grab one from one of the tables in the back and we're gonna talk for just a moment about the Lord's Supper. The Apostle Paul wrote to the church at Corinth, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after, after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What an amazing thing. You choose to take the little wafer here, the bread, and the juice. You're making a visible proclamation that you have received the benefits of Jesus' body and blood given on the cross for you. Then he gives a warning. Whoever therefore (coughs) eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Before we partake, I'd like to take a moment and do that for us to prayerfully wait on the Lord for a moment of silence, examine ourselves, and then partake together. Would you join me as we do that? (coughs) Father, I pray first for anyone here who may have not Receive the salvation that you provide through faith in Jesus. And I pray if that is the case. That you would draw that person this morning. To acknowledge his or her sin. To place his or her trust in Jesus Christ alone. For their salvation. Father for the rest of us. Would you use this. Holy thing. This holy. Sacrament we call the Lord's Supper to renew our faith, to revive our faith, to renew our gratitude, our devotion, our love for you, and bring to mind as we prepare to partake it any sin we should confess, any wrong we should attempt to right, any person we should forgive. Amen. And now, let's partake together. I'll give you a moment to first peel the top plastic layer off the little wafer. And when you, I'll give you a minute and then we'll partake together. Everybody ready? The body of Christ given for you. Give you just a moment to get the juice ready. All right. The blood of Jesus shed for you. Would you join me again as we pray? Father, I pray that you would revive and renew and strengthen our faith. That you would empower and anoint us with the Holy Spirit to be your witnesses. That you would put people in our paths, in our lives in the coming weeks and months with whom we can share the gospel, which is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Be magnified, Lord, we pray in our lives. In Jesus' holy name. Amen.